and today we begin a new series in the book of Jude. Book of Jude, it's near the end of the good book. Revelation is at the very end, and the book that in your Bible probably spans one page is just prior to Revelation. So if you're looking for Jude, that's probably the most efficient way to find it. Go to Revelation and turn back just a few pages until you find the book of Jude. I'm looking forward to this series because we've just completed a gospel, right? A summary of the faith that has been delivered to the church. And in Jude, we are admonished to contend or to fight for this faith, this once and for all faith that has been given to the church. It's a faith that's, that's not changing. It's not malleable. And it is constant down through the ages. And so uh, this morning we are going to begin with verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 of Jude. Would you pray with me as we ask God to meet us in the reading of his word? God, we love you this morning. We bless your name. God, we thank you that no one ever loved us like Jesus. Lord, we're going to reflect on that love this morning. We're going to consider this morning how it enables us uh, to wage war for the sake of the gospel. God, we pray this morning that hearts would be lifted, spirits would be lifted, minds would be renewed in Christ Jesus. God, that you would bolster our confidence in Christ and the message of the gospel. And that we would be resolute, God, to never shrink back from uh, a defense and waging war, God, on behalf of the faith once and for all and live to the saints. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude, book of Jude, just the first two verses. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. The book of Jude is written by a man named Jude, or Judah, or Judas, literally, the brother of James. As the brother of James, he's connecting himself to the well-known leader of the Jerusalem church. You remember the 12 apostles, and James is sort of the leader among leaders there in the first church in Jerusalem. Which means, incidentally, that he's also connecting himself to Jesus. He's a biological relative of Jesus. Which is fascinating that he doesn't mention, right? In Matthew 13, 55, we learn of the names of Jesus' brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judah, or Judas, or Jude. During Jesus' public ministry, the brothers of Jesus don't follow him, as you, we saw that in Mark. In fact, they, they think he's crazy, but after his resurrection, they believe in him, and they're at the prayer meetings there in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, prior to Pentecost, and then... Paul references them as traveling teachers and missionaries after the Lord's ascension. So Jude has had a, a radical change in his life. He's the brother of Jesus, the brother of James, the, the lead pastor, if you will, at the church at Jerusalem. And he's traveling across the countryside, ministering to churches. And at some point, he encounters a church or perhaps a cluster of churches in a region that is wrestling with... Uh, an alien invasion, a secret invasion. We don't get that until verse 3. But there's, there's people who've crept into the church, verse 4, and they've gained positions of influence. But Jude tells us later in the letter, and we'll talk more about them as we work through the letter, that they are ungodly persons. 
that they're grumblers and fault finders and people pursuing their own lusts, verse 16. They do things to impress people, all to try and gain a personal advantage. They seem impressive on the outside, but when push comes to shove, they have no room for accountability to God a respect for authority, and no remorse for the damage that they cause in the body of Christ. So Jude tells the church, rather than writing a letter that he had planned to write, he tells us in verse 3 about their common salvation, he instead sends off this, what I call a fiery little epistle. It's, it's full of fire. It, it's, he is not pulling any punches. And he, he sends it to the church and says, you fight for the faith. You identify the impostors and do not follow them. You contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because the faith is worthy of our defense. Those who enter the church and seem to say the right things, but then curry favor and position with a desire to undermine and divide, Jude tells us, are under the judgment of God and are not of the faith, no matter what they say. Schreiner writes this, the message of judgment is especially relevant today. For our churches are prone to sentimentality. Oh, don't judge. We don't want to judge. We don't want to. We, we, we know he's always dividing and always messing around, but we don't want to be judgmental. But Paul tells us what? You don't judge outsiders, but you do judge insiders. When they, when they come into the family of faith and then they just act to destroy the faith, then you act with judgment. Our churches suffer from moral breakdown and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment. Why? Because of an inadequate definition of love. An inadequate definition of love. Now let me ask you a question. If you're a father or a mother today, if someone messes with your son or your daughter, does your definition of love mean not dealing with the problem? Of course not. Neither does Jesus' definition of love mean allowing someone to come into the church family and wreck it all to pieces without doing anything or saying anything simply because they seem to be saying the right things. Should we not feel the same way about the church and the faith once for all delivered to the saints as we would our son or our daughter if someone were unjustly messing with them? You see, Jude refuses to separate truth and love. We fight for the faith because it is God's truth. And we can do this because of who we are in Christ. This is why Jude begins the letter with our identity. It is the faith that makes us children of God. And as children of God, we can faith, fight with confidence for the faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. So this morning, what I want to show you, as briefly as I can, you're going to think two verses. It's not going to be very long. Actually... It might be about 150 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. But to contend for the faith, we see two big things. And the first point has, has several subpoints that I want you to get this morning. First, we must know we are who we are in Christ. And second, we must know what we have from Christ. We must know who we are in Christ, verse 1. First, who does Jude tell us that he is? Of Christ Jesus, or of Jesus Christ, a slave, which means we, we need to see that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Jude introduces himself, Jude of Jesus Christ, a slave. His standing for writing the letter does not come because he is a blood relative of Jesus, but rather through his submission to Jesus. 
Slave can denote a special assignment from God, as it often does in the Old Testament of the prophets and Moses and Abraham. Or it can be a more general term that applies to all believers. I think, I think both of the cases in Jude's instance. He's a slave of God with a special assignment, and he's a slave like all of us are to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says, Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So let's not miss what Jude is doing. He's writing to the church that's been infiltrated by people pretending to be the real thing. Even their service to others is actually motivated by attention to themselves. But Jude is not interested in elevating himself. He's happy to be a slave of the king of kings. He's not motivated as the gospel pretenders often are. Worldly claims to status or fame or glory or power. He does not have a problem submitting to the authority of Christ. He is owned by him. Because he was bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And that price was the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. Church, one of the greatest ways to contend for the gospel is to remember we are slaves to Christ Jesus. In every context and in every relationship, children in obedience to their parents, wives in submissions to their husbands, Christian in submission to their into, in their submission to one another. Churches in submission to the word and to the systems of authority and accountability that God gives to the local church to govern and structure the local church. Although Jesus is indeed Jude's brother, Jude gladly serves Jesus as his slave. Church, Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our king. Those who belong to Christ understand that it is infinitely greater to be a slave of King Jesus than it is to be king of our own hill. If we will remember this as we fight for the faith, we will be equipped to recognize and resist anyone who seeks to invade and undermine the faith. We are slaves to Christ. We're not showing We're slaves. But secondly, We've been called by God. We are slaves of Christ, and we have been called by God. When someone asks you to go to war, to go to battle, as Jude is going to do in verse 3, it is wise to evaluate the odds of winning. That's why when I play basketball here in the gym at North Roanoke Baptist Church, try to get a little break, I always ask Hove if he wants to play and not Pastor Ethan. I've evaluated my odds of winning. <laughs> Jesus says, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? What Jude wants us to know is that we have, if we are in Christ, we are equipped for the battle to come. He wants the church to know that they are ready for the battle, and they can confidently engage the battle. The intruders might be destabilizing the church, resisting authority, and satisfying the lusts of their flesh, but they cannot undo the fact that the people of the true church of God are the called. The word called here does not mean invited. Jude is not saying the church is a group of people who got an invitation that they could take or reject. He is saying the church is a group of people who have been powerfully, miraculously, irrevocably placed into the family of God 
by God and made a part of his plan forever. Paul speaks of this calling in Romans when he says, We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, the specifics of how it is that God calls some into his family while others are not called has been a source of debate for as long as there's been a church. I agree with Timothy George who says God created human beings with free moral agency. He does not violate this even in the supernatural work of regeneration. Christ does not rudely bludgeon his way into the human heart. He does not abrogate our creaturely freedom. No, he beckons and woos. He pleads and pursues and he waits and he wins. And praise God that God breaks us down and that he wins. That God wins is proof that we are the called of God. But listen, church, God doesn't tell us that we've been called so that we would debate about how it is that we were called. The reason that he tells us we are the called of God is so that we would have confidence in the fight. He tells us that we are the called so that we would fight for the faith rather than we would fight about how it is we were called. We do not need to be fearful of contending for the faith. Why? Because God has called us. And with God, by the way, there are no recalls. If God calls you, he never recalls you. That we are called by God, Jude tells us, is an anchor in the storm and in the trial. Our confidence as we contend for the faith comes from the fact that we are once for all irrevocably called by God. Jude is saying, I'm asking you, church, to go to battle. So you remember the one who called you. The one who enlisted you. This is not a wedding invitation. It's like being drafted for service. You've been drafted and there is no, there's no out. God has brought you into his army and you can go to war for him. We can confidently fight the battle for the faith because the called are the ones who win the war. John says in Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So we are called by God. And what's interesting is how Jude describes this. He says, I'm a slave of, Je of Jesus Christ, a slave. And then he says, to those who are, and then actually before the word called, there's this long descriptive phrase in the middle that says to those who are in the Father beloved and by Christ Jesus kept the call. In other words, if you are the called of God, then you are beloved in God the Father and you are kept for, or I would argue by, Jesus Christ. Now the King James Version uses the word sanctified instead of loved or beloved. But the word beloved is the, used the vast majority uh, of the occasions in the manuscripts that we have available. And I, I am convinced that the word that is used here is not sanctified, but is loved or beloved by God. Jude is telling us of the special love of God for those who are his children through faith in Christ. 
Aiken says this, for those who are in Christ, God is now our Father. And He loves us with a perfect and permanent fatherly affection. The love is not whimsical or fleeting or conditional. You can do nothing to make God love you more, and you can do nothing to make Him love you less. As 1 John 4.10 puts it, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Praise God for the love that He showers upon His children. The love of God for the called comes in the realm of the Father. It comes in the Father. Think of a, a little girl running up into her daddy's arms and he embraces her and he holds her and there she senses and knows and feels the love of her father in a way that she cannot know it otherwise. Perhaps he's been gone on a trip. Perhaps he's been overseas serving our country and he returns and he holds her tight. This is the agape, self-giving love of God that is being described. And what Jude is saying is that is where the call of God remain, and God never lets you go. Now I want to speak pastorally for a moment. God is doing a new and wonderful and beautiful thing in North Roman Baptist Church. Adults are trusting Christ. Wives and husbands are embracing the roles that God has given to them, and their marriages are being healed and restored. People are stepping out in service and faith in new ways. We have just walked through Mark's gospel, and I have received email after email after conversation of people saying, I've never seen the connection between dying to myself and really living before, but now I see it. Thank you for walking us through the gospel of Mark. God is doing a new work at North Roanoke Baptist Church, and it is exciting. And guess what? Satan doesn't want that to so I want to speak pastorally for a moment. Satan has no interest in what the Spirit of God is beginning to do. And should he try to derail what God desires for the saints of North Roanoke, we've got to be ready. Jude tells us that we are beloved because people who secretly invade churches do not reflect the love of the Father. That's how you'll know them. To reflect Excuse me, to gain the power and prestige and position necessary to make a mess of things, they eventually and unrepentantly stray from love. They will gossip. They will grandstand. They will even make stuff up. Even if their point is valid, they will not speak redemptively. They will not be patient. They won't listen to anyone authority, and they will not love. Tom Rainer speaks of such individuals. He calls them church disruptors. He describes church disruptors in these six ways. He says a church disruptor, Tom Rainer, by the way, was the president of Lifeway, recently retired. So it's not his fault that they closed the Lifeway. He retired before they closed Lifeway over here. He was a church consultant for many, many years, worked with many, many pastors, pastors of local churches. Here's what he observes about church disruptors from the hundreds and thousands of churches he's consulted with. Church disruptors often seek positions in the church so he can get attention. He loves to exert his negative influence through key and visible positions. Church disruptors often vote no in business meetings. Church disruptors love to say people are saying without ever telling you who's saying. 
Church disruptors try to get followers for their cause of the moment. Church disruptors often assure the pastor and the other leadership that they love and support them before they wield the knife and drive it into their back. Church disruptors love to use facts loosely for their case or their cause. If you were to summarize this list, would it not be that ultimately they do not love? They strike at moments that we feel most likely that God has forgotten us. And if they can't find that occasion, then they try to create it. So how do we contend for the faith when people make us feel deficient or crazy or like our world is unraveling, that we are in love? We remember this, that no matter what somebody might say or what we may feel in the moment, the Father loves His children with a never-stopping, never-failing, always and forever love. And if God loves us, then God is for us, then who can be against us? And impressing the imposters is not important. So Jude tells us we are loved by the Father, and there's nothing that can take that away. Then he tells us we are kept by Christ. Now, your translation might say for Christ. It's hard to know because the preposition is actually not used in the Greek. It's a dative noun, and we have to interpret what the dative means. I believe, consistent with most Greek interpretation, that it's a dative of agency. In other words, Jude is saying we are kept not for Christ, but we are kept by Christ. And if that's what Jude is saying, and I'm convinced grammatically that's exactly what Jude is saying, he's putting the Father and the Son on equal footing. So people who say, well, Jesus isn't divine, well, just read Jude and Mark and John and all over the place in the Bible. But here again, we've got Jude saying, the Father is God and Jesus is God. You are beloved in the realm of the Father and you are kept steadfastly by Jesus Christ. To be kept means to be protected and guarded and preserved. In verse 6 and 13, Jude tells us that the fallen angels and the secret invaders are being kept for judgment and darkness. But praise God, those who are called by God into his salvation are kept by Jesus for glory. This Jesus is the one who lived for us. He was the one who died on the old rugged cross for us, who was buried for us, who rose for us and is now ascended for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch that? Jesus bought your salvation on the cross, and He maintains your salvation even now through His prayers in the heavenlies. Father, don't forget the cross. Father, don't forget the cross. Father, they are covered by my blood. We are kept, church family, by the blood of Jesus and the prayers of Jesus on our behalf. Why can we fight confidently for the faith? Because those who are called by God have the unfailing love of the Father. And we have the ongoing protection of Jesus Christ, His Son. So we must know who we are in Christ. Secondly, we need to know what we have from Christ. In verse 2, Jude prays that the church's experience and their awareness of God's mercy and peace and love would be multiplied or increased by God in their midst. Mercy, 
peace, and love. As we walk through the little book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, you'll notice that Jude likes groups of three. He would have been a great Baptist preacher. He would have always had a three-point sermon, right? First, you're called, beloved, and kept. And now he wants mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied. And as we continue, you'll just see the triads heaping up on one another. He loves little groups of three. His prayer is that God will continue to make the church, even in the midst of a battle, that they would always be aware that God is supplying supernaturally, miraculously, in abundance, mercy and peace and love. You see, ch churches often walk away from fights they need to engage because they don't feel mercy, peace, and love in the middle of the fight. And Jude is saying, oh, it's there in abundance. When you have to engage and when you have to contend, that's when you will know when God, the, the Spirit, will rise up in the family and He will give you mercy, peace, and love that is sufficient for the task. There's a logic here to Jude's order. Our hope begins at mercy. What is mercy? It's the compassion and the loving kindness of God. It is the gracious and undeserved and unearned blessing of being pursued and overtaken by God. We were dead in our sins, and God came running to rescue us. God did not give us what we deserve. Rather, He gave us mercy. He continues to mercifully supply our need and to give us His presence. If we're constantly growing in the awareness of our need for God's mercy. That is how we will be able to extend God's mercy to those who are doubting or nearly captured by the gospel impostors. This is what Jude will tell us later in verses 22 and 23. Because you are obtaining mercy from God, you can extend mercy to those who are doubting or almost trapped by those who have tried to infiltrate the church and make a mess of things. And finally, we will be able to recognize as imposters, those who think they deserve something, those who seem to neglect their ongoing need for God's mercy. Aren't you thankful for God's mercy? Amen. Though we deserved hell, death, and the grave, He came and conquered it all and gave us mercy. Jude moves from mercy to peace because mercy from God leads to peace with God and one another. There's a logic here, right? In Judges 6.24, God is called the Lord is peace. True peace belongs to God and it comes from God. How? Through His mercy. When we begin, church, with the perspective that we are amazed that we even get to be here, and that is only because God called us undeservedly, then God's peace will prevail and it will be multiplied among us. The reason that churches are full of strife is because they have so often admitted as members and placed in positions of leadership people who think they are doing God and the church a favor rather than people who cannot believe that they get to be there at all. But if we are grateful slaves of Jesus Christ, overwhelmed by the truth that he mercifully did not give us what we deserved, then we will have peace with God and with one another. Romans 5.1 says, because of his mercy, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have that external peace, that legal peace, 
that, that our debt has been paid in full. It produces on the inside an inward peace. The Spirit of God uses that to protect us and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which means while there's a holy urgency in the church to go make disciples and to do things in Jesus' name, there's also a peace. Even as we're evaluating and pursuing and constantly going and trying to find new ways to make disciples on the one hand. On the other hand, we are never fretful or exasperated. We're not constantly nitpicking and pot stirring. There's a holy tenacity on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's a resolute peace that I am called and beloved and kept. And I've been mercifully adopted into the kingdom. And if that is true, we're going to win. And so I can be pushing on the one hand and I can be patient and at peace on the other. Peace is not the absence of conflict. That won't happen until Jesus returns. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of Christ in the middle of the battle. The church needs real peace because the interlopers, the gospel pretenders, are causing division. Verse 19. Jude prays that the church will know the abundant peace of God as they fight for the faith that has brought them the peace of God. How did they have peace in the first place? Through the faith that is now being attacked. So you've got to fight for the faith because it's what brought you peace. And last but certainly not least, Jude prays for the church to be filled up to overflowing with an awareness of God's love. He's already said you're beloved, but we want love to be multiplied. They needed God's love in abundance because the intruders cared only for themselves. Jude has already assured us that those who are called by God are forever loved by the Father. Paul echoes this truth in chapter 8, verse 39 of Romans. I am convinced that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But you know what? Some will try. Some will try to separate you from the love of God. Some will try to make you doubt the love of God. And while there are all kinds of love that do not win, there is a love that does. And it is the love from God, of God, for God, and for God's people. It is the agape love of God. It's the only kind of love that wins. It's the self giving love of God. It's, it's the love of God that leads us not to increase, but to decrease so that he might be known as the savior of the world. When we really got the agape love of God, we don't go up, we go down because Christ came down so that he might bring us up. Paul says that this love, this agape love never fails. So this morning, I want to urge you to delight in the good things that God is doing in our midst. And yet, at the same time, to be prepared, if necessary, to contend for the faith. May we have the confidence that God intends for us. Confidence that comes from knowing whose we are and enjoying what He gives. He gives mercy upon mercy upon mercy. He gives peace upon peace upon peace, and He gives love. May we never make peace with the world when we should be fighting for the faith.
May our actions and our words be motivated by the self-giving love of God for his children in Christ.